0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Welcome, 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 welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi and welcome to the
0: Roy Green Show podcast. You're going to hear Ronald Dalton. He was wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife. Wait till you hear his story. Andrew Scheer joined us, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, calling on CSIS to investigate John McCallum, the former ambassador to China, as McCallum was giving advice to China about the Conservatives and the federal election. Calvin Helene is the chairman of Eagle Spirit Energy. It's a huge oil and liquefied natural gas pipeline project. Mr. Helene shared the information about where they stand with the National Energy Board and the new legislation, Bill C-69 and C-48. Jeff Manish, criminal lawyer in Hamilton, former prosecutor. He's handled some of the most highly profiled murder cases, spoke to us about how it's possible with our justice system in this country to be found guilty of murder when you're completely innocent. And Peter McKay, former National Minister of Defense, on the chaos at the top of the Canadian Armed Forces. I just uh, went back to a database on Ronald Dalton's story. He's on the line. We'll talk to him in about a minute. Uh, Ronald Dalton was wrongly convicted in 1989 of murdering his wife, Brenda, in Newfoundland. Mr. Dalton's conviction was overturned on appeal eight and a half years later in 1998. Uh, Dalton was released on bail from prison pending a new trial. He was acquitted in 2000 after a retrial. Forensic evidence indicated his wife, Brenda, had not been strangled, which is what Mr. Dalton was convicted of. Rather, she had, tragically, choked to death on her own food. So here's a man who has done nothing wrong, nothing. Witnesses his wife in huge distress. We'll talk to him about this. Took her to the hospital and that's where things started to go wrong because unqualified people started to become involved. And what is terrifying about a situation like this, it could be anybody. Could be you next. Could be anybody later today. Mr. Dalton, thank you very much for taking the time. co president of Innocence Canada, you do tremendous work with the with, for for people who are wrongly convicted.
3: Well, thank you, Roy. I, I was listening in as you were speaking with your previous guest, and you left it off at an interesting spot. Uh, he confirmed or gave the opinion that there is no mechanism in the criminal justice system for fixing mistakes. And our organization is a, a bunch of do-gooders who got together back in 1993 following the Guy Moran case uh, where they had got themselves involved. They thought there was a miscarriage of justice. They were able to help resolve that particular case, and they sat around someone's kitchen table uh, with, with a dozen beer and, and a pizza and, and said, you know, there's probably other cases out there like this, and they started a, a small non-profit organization that was, we floundered along for the last 25 years, Glen Assoon's case uh, represents our 24th exoneration during that period that's incredible so we, we we have done a lot to uh, change the landscape of wrongful convictions in the last 25 years in this country yeah and you've also alerted prosecutors and police to the fact that you're there well, not not to pat ourselves on the back, but when we walk into court now, we, we do so with a, a certain uh, cachet of, of work behind us. Courts in particular have taken notice of the work we do, and it may happen one of these days that we'll back a losing horse, but we have an enviable record. The cases that we've actually, we work on these for years, by the time we send them up to the federal justice minister and ask for a review, uh, we've been successful in, in all of our applications to date.
0: Mr. Dalton, you... Uh I don't know how many people could do what you're doing uh, now, after all you've gone through, after all you've been put through, to be able to be as committed as you are to the Innocence Canada project and to be publicly open to speak about it, and it it takes an exceptional person to do this. uh, I I want to start with this. I read that you were 32-year-old bank manager. It's not the first time you and I have talked, by the way. Uh, You were a 32-year-old bank manager, and your wife was 31 when you were arrested for the murder of your wife, who was ultimately found to have choked on a piece of dry cereal. Tell me if anything's wrong about what I have here. At the hospital in Gander, the only doctor in the ER where you and your wife went, you took her, was young and largely inexperienced. Resuscitation failed, and an autopsy found some marks on the inside of your wife's throat. The hospital pathologist, who had no forensic training and no forensic case experience, concluded your wife was the victim of homicide, and that's when you were arrested. Then the trial, the verdict, This is a nightmare scenario, and as I said a few minutes ago, it could happen to literally anybody in Canada today. Am I correct about the
3: details of what happened to you? Your your details are are correct. The the one minor correction I'd make is the poor chap in charge of the emergency room at midnight when we took Brenda to the hospital was a medical student from Ireland doing a, a summer locum. He was filling in for summer vacations and had never intubated or put a breathing tube in a live patient before. So he was faced with the choice of waiting to call in an anesthesiologist uh, at midnight, and they're the people who have the training and, and generally do that procedure in a hospital setting, or to attempt it himself. He chose to attempt it himself, unfortunately uh, inserted the breathing tube into her esophagus rather than her trachea so that he blew her up like a balloon then because this tube gets sealed in your throat, and he pumped air into her stomach and sealed her fate as it would. Oh, my. And then, of course, that was compounded by the inexperienced pathologist the following day who did an autopsy, thought he had a homicide, and uh, set in, in motion a, a chain of events that took a dozen years to, to resolve.
0: So you're grieving the death of your wife, and at the same time you're being tried for her murder, and you're convicted of her murder. Uh, when, when you were declared guilty, and you were being transported to a federal maximum security prison. I, sh- I assume it was a maximum security prison. It certainly was. So the moment, the time that you're in the vehicle and they're transporting you to this maximum security prison to serve your life sentence, what was that ride like?
3: Well, it, everything was, was pretty difficult from the uh, from the moment that they had informed me that Brenda had passed away. I thought that was the worst moment of my life and, and the longest night of my life as I set up uh, trying to imagine how I was going to tell our three children the next morning that their mother had passed away. Mm. She was alive and well when they went to bed at night. By the time they woke up the next morning, she was gone. Our youngest child was only 18 months old, so he wouldn't understand, but we had a six-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son. And and the nightmare got worse, then within 12 hours I was arrested, charged, incarcerated. Now I had a bit of an advantage in that I was given bail for a year and a half uh, after a couple of weeks. I was incarcerated for a couple of weeks before we had a bail hearing, but I was able to have a year and a half or so with my children, get them straightened away and settled with my family and into school and spend some time with them. And I didn't realize at the time how valuable that was until I was taken away from them and put into a a maximum security prison.
0: So you missed so many important events, large and small, in the development of your kids.
3: Oh well, just, just to give your readers or your readers, your listeners a, a snapshot, our six year old daughter had graduated kindergarten the year her mother died. My retrial completed in June of two thousand. Uh, the jury came back on a Saturday afternoon in Newfoundland. My daughter was living in, in PEI with my family at the time. I Drove a day and a half to get to PEI on Monday afternoon. She graduated high school that Monday evening. Mm, you, you missed everything. You can imagine the twelve years that you missed mm. between the age of six and the ages of eighteen, and that's just that one child's life. There was two others, of course.
0: Man, that's that's it's such a huge hole in the entire family's lives, and and for what reason? Because huge mistakes were made. Um,
3: you were a target in prison, were you not? Sorry? You were, a, were you a target in prison? No, I'd, I'd have to say I really wasn't. Uh, I, I think uh, Glenn Assoon, uh, David Milgard, and in particular, a lot of them uh, were targeted more than I was. Uh, interestingly enough, the prisoners that I spent time with quickly come to realize that uh, uh, you don't belong there. You're spending day and night. You, know, you, can, you can put up a good front for a while and, and fool people for a bit. But when you're living with people day in and day out for years and years, they come to know who belongs there and who doesn't. Yeah. So I had no problem convincing other prisoners that I didn't belong there. It was convincing convincing the courts and getting uh, myself back in court to prove my innocence. Well, let's, let's, let's a talk time.
0: let's talk about that because you had two lawyers who didn't do very much for you, if anything, as far as I no, and I've been able to research, uh, as far as the appeal of the sentence was concerned. Then you got a third lawyer who actually got to work on the appeal. How long, what was the time frame between being incarcerated and getting this third lawyer working, really working for you?
3: Uh, I was serving a life sentence that came with a 10-year minimum, which was the, the smallest sentence they could give me for second-degree murder. Uh, seven years into a 10-year minimum, you're allowed to apply for what they call day parole. I made application to the parole board, who laughed, of course, because an appeal couldn't take that long. They they wrote to me, Uh, but at that point, I filed my own appeal factum with the Court of Appeal in St. John's in Newfoundland and tried to get a, a hearing set. I challenged the court to go out and hire as many forensic pathologists as they wanted. If they could find one that would agree with the Crown's original one, I'd stay where I was. Otherwise, we better either have a retrial or drop this altogether. Uh, At some point, uh, a junior lawyer with one of the firms I had previously uh, contacted me and said, listen, uh, we don't even have access to your file in our office. The uh, senior lawyer who's supposed to be doing this really isn't. Our firm is kind of breaking up, and it's partly over this issue. There is a young lawyer in our building who does a lot of appeal work. Would you like me to put you in touch with him? I took them up on that offer, and Jerome Kennedy stepped into the the picture, and uh, within seven or eight months of that time, within six weeks or so, Jerome had me transferred back from the maximum security prison to the local penitentiary in St. John's so we could work together on the appeal, and six months later, he had filed uh, compendious uh, uh, appeal factum and, and arguments, uh, including uh, affidavits from uh, half a dozen world-renowned forensic pathologists all disagreeing with the first one. The one who was responsible for your time That's in right. prison,
0: yeah. for your conviction. Yeah.
3: So when, once that was done, uh, my uh, appeal uh, was granted uh, about six months after that. So it wasn't much more than a year from the time Jerome got involved in, in the case until my conviction was overturned. That mm-hmm. was overturned with an order for a new trial. That took a couple years to get organized. And the first trial that ended wrongly uh, took six weeks. The retrial took nine months. And we went a bit overboard. We called 13 different uh, uh, expert witnesses, a couple of emergency uh, room experts to talk about the mistakes that the young doctor had had uh, ran into in, in the emergency department that night. We brought in six or seven forensic pathologists who literally wrote the books. We went all around the world and got the Sir Bernard Knights and, and others who had, uh, had basically started the, the forensic uh, medicine in, in the...
0: So what you did in, in your in your appeal, um, you, you set precedents for the rest of the country.
3: We, we you did. changed we, you changed you changed the rule book. It made it much more fair. We, we changed the rules in, in the province of Newfoundland in particular, because following my acquittal, uh, there had been two other cases in Newfoundland within a fairly compressed time period. There was three cases that went wrong within a five year period. So acting with the other two uh, victims of the wrongful conviction, we were able to get a public inquiry. And that was headed by former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Antonio Lemaire, since deceased now, but he uh, held an inquiry that ran over two and a half years, produced uh, all kinds of recommendations on all three mm-hmm. of these cases, and, and changed some of the rules to make it a bit better going forward, less likely for these things to happen.
0: What a remarkable story! I mean, it's remarkable in every sense of the word. You're living, you lived it. I'm just hearing you speak, and it's it's scaring the daylights out of me, because as I said at the beginning, and I'm sure you would agree, it could happen to anybody in this country today.
3: Well, that's that's the reality. I, uh, I spent a lot of time with, with Glenn Assoon yesterday, of course, and, and I've met him on a few occasions. Glenn literally did double the time that I did. Uh, the only difference between Glenn's case and my case is that in Glenn's case there was a crime and in mine there wasn't. Uh,
0: Mr. Dalton, so you had no help when you—I'm have to squeeze a lot in here in four minutes—you uh, had no help when you were reintroduced or re-entered society. You were standing beside Glenn Assune this week. That must have brought back so many memories
3: for you. You worried for him? Uh, I am. Uh, Glenn is uh, 63 years old. He's got some serious health issues. He doesn't have a penny to his name, doesn't know where the bread on the table is coming from tomorrow. You don't get as much as a a one-way bus ticket home in in Glenn's situation. And he's been out of prison on bail for the last five years, but he's been living on on the kindness of strangers and, and some help from his family and our organization a little bit. And, uh, but he's basically been kicked to the curb with, without so much as an apology.
0: You know, there's a, there's a feeling uh, in general society that if you're wrongfully convicted and you spend a lot of time in prison, once you get out, you sue them and uh, they'll settle with you and you'll get millions and walk away.
3: Uh, That happens in some cases. I know in our organization we have 24 exonerations, now fewer than half of those people have ever been compensated. Some of them have. I spent uh, 12 years from my wife's death until the end of my second trial, I spent another seven years in civil proceedings before uh, I was able to uh, get a small settlement from the government to help out my family and, and myself for what we went right. through. Uh, Glenn's health is, is and age uh, conspire against him. We've had clients, including Romeo Filion, that uh, spent 31 years in, in prison and died before they got a chance to uh, get any compensation. It's a very, very uphill battle. There's, again, no mechanism in the criminal justice system for dealing with mistakes, including compensating victims of mistakes. That's just awful.
0: That's just terrible. So they it, steal it, it, years and years some of your life.
3: Of some, some jurisdictions, as, as you probably know, Great Britain and New Zealand and other places, have independent bodies, publicly funded independent bodies, to right. do the type of work that Innocence Canada is doing. Uh, on a volunteer basis we we struggle to exist as most nonprofits do
0: so you could use some contributions from,
3: we can from our listeners contributions i mean we we literally have a lease coming due next spring that we don't know if we're going to be able to uh, to renew uh, we have a very small staff but we need some people to do this this work and how do had, uh, how, how do people lawyers, get in touch there well there's there's lawyers uh, working on like Glenn's case for example i mean Phil Campbell Rome Kennedy, a name you've heard before today, and, and Sean McDonald, right. have worked on this case for the last 13 years uh, with no compensation.
0: So we, uh, our listeners can just go to Innocence Canada can visit, online? Visit
3: the website at, at Innocence Canada, and there are okay. several ways we, we can take your money. But, Mr. Uh, Mr. We, would, we would love to be publicly funded or be replaced altogether. We'd like to work ourselves out of business, but sadly I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for what you do. Thank you so much. And all the very best
3: to you, sir. Well, thank you, Roy. Good to talk to you again. All right. Uh,
0: Ron Dalton, Ronald Dalton, and uh, his story. Uh, On Twitter, it's at Innocence Canada. And really, the next person this happens to could be you, me, anybody, today. That's the terrifying part. Innocence Canada, they do tremendous work. The Conservative Party of Canada is calling on CSIS to investigate former liberal cabinet minister and Canadian ambassador to China, John McCallum, for election interference and uh, a TMX announcement of significance, supposedly, from Mr. Trudeau was heralded for his appearance in Edmonton yesterday. Well, it fizzled out. Nothing much happened as far as that's concerned. Joining us on the program... Is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Mr. Andrew Shear? Mr. Shear, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you doing? Um, doing pretty uh, good here, just in Toronto, enjoying the indie. Well, you guys get to go to all the good things, don't you? That's just, <laughs> It's called power.
4: <laughs> well, it's called trying to meet as many people as I can this summer. So, yeah. doing a lot of travel and was in Stampede just last week and now uh, touring out uh, throughout the GTA.
0: Well, let me ask you about uh, your your party's call and your call on CSIS to investigate former liberal cabinet minister and uh, ambassador to China, John McCallum, for the things he said, the advice that he provided to the Chinese government. Speak to that, please.
4: Well, here we have a high-ranking liberal a former ambassador, someone who's very close to the Trudeau government, who continues to be seen uh, uh, with uh, with high-ranking liberal uh, cabinet ministers, basically inviting the government of China to interfere in our election, coaching them as to how they can help liberals win the next election. But what I found most troubling was the message that a re-elected Liberal government would be better for China, that uh, he's basically telling the government of China that a Conservative government would deal uh, with China more forcefully, and that that would not be good for the government of China, and so that they should help Liberals get elected, which I think is, completely undermines Canada's position uh, in relation to the dispute that we have ongoing right now with China. and. Again, I find very troubling the fact that Justin Trudeau has failed to denounce these comments. And I, I'm very concerned that this is the official Liberal Party message being sent to officials in China.
0: Well, the uh, Liberal Party and Mr. Trudeau has said very clearly that they don't want Canadian uh, election, this Canadian election to be interfered with, and they're going to call out anybody who does. In fact, they have a, a, a group in place to do that. And, and yet, as you say, here's Mr. McCallum giving advice to the Chinese government. Uh, and 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 nothing is said. It, it really exactly. is. It really is incredible, isn't it? Though you have the former ambassador, Canadian ambassador to China, telling the Chinese which gov- which party would be best for China.
4: It's it's unbelievable, and, and and what a terrible message that sends to Canadians that that uh, this high-ranking Liberal is more concerned about what's good for China than what's good for uh, Canadians. And you're right; it's not like it's a uh, you know former backbencher from 20 years ago who maybe uh, you know went off went off his notes and said something inappropriate. This is someone who was our top official in China for uh, a significant length of time, who up until uh, just recently was our ambassador, who continues to enjoy access to uh, the upper levels of the Liberal government. Uh, making this type of statement. And it's completely hypocritical for the Liberal government to talk about protecting Canada's election from foreign interference if they're not willing to shine the light on themselves and see exactly what's going on here. Are these liberal messages that John McCallum's only mistake was making them public? Uh, Are these the types of conversations that are going on between Chinese diplomats stationed here in Canada and other liberals? Uh, We need to get to the bottom of this.
0: It's also important that Mr. Trudeau clarify his position and respond to Mr. McCallum, because we do know that Mr. Trudeau has in the past self-identified as an admirer of China's, quote, basic dictatorship end quote
4: yes that's right uh justin trudeau you know, obviously prefers the ability for dictators uh, to get uh, to, how, how they are able to rule countries, and all this uh, democracy that he has to put up with here in Canada. You know, it's just outrageous <laughs> that he made those comments in the first place, and and he and he's he's basically governed that way uh, as much as as he can. Uh, we we as the opposition were successful in in stopping some of his more outrageous tax hikes, but uh, you know he's still putting in things like the carbon tax over the objection of, of premiers and other officials. Uh, sorry, and, and, and Canadians, but. But as you say, you know, he, he has been dealing with, uh, with China from a position of weakness ever since the start. We have two Canadians being held, uh, you know, without any real justification. We have our canola, beef and pork exports being blocked. And literally, Justin Trudeau has done nothing. When the U.S. was putting tariffs on Canadian products, the government quite rightly responded in a, in a, in a similar fashion. I don't understand why Justin Trudeau is not willing to do the same when China is threatening our interests and threatening Canadians. I've announced that I would pull funding from the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which is controlled by China, which helps expand Chinese foreign policy. There's no reason why Canadian tax dollars should be going to pay for that. And I would also start the work to uh, to prepare for retaliatory tariffs against Chinese products coming into our markets. It's uh, The lack of response from Justin
0: Trudeau has completely sold out Canadians. There's a third Canadian being held now.
4: Yeah, so we just learned about that today, and, and uh, haven't got uh, any clarifications or any details about what the charges are. Of course, we're always very concerned, given the fact that the Chinese legal system is not based on the same independence and rule of law that we have here. Uh, so we're we're reaching out, trying to get more information about uh, what this might might be. We don't want to jump to uh, any premature conclusions, but given the, the track record of the government of China recently, uh, obviously we're we're quite concerned to
0: hear this news. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about uh, trans mountain extension. An announcement was expected yesterday. More or less told, we were told to expect an announcement from the prime minister in Edmonton. Nothing happened.
4: Well, what did happen was that Justin Trudeau had another campaign style event on the taxpayer dime. We're now seeing this pattern uh, emerge this July. He's flying around on, uh, on, on phony government business, making reannouncements announcements and nothing, you know, uh, phony announcements to justify uh, political travel. Uh, in, fairness, in fairness,
0: Mr. Sherry, he's not the first to do that.
4: Well, he he is the first prime minister to limit the ability for the opposition parties to to get our message out. He has put in restrictions on uh, on opposition parties in terms of advertising and what we can do to get our message out. Right. And he has a massive advantage to flying around the country doing what he's doing. Uh, he should uh, he should stop that. He should get the Liberal Party of Canada to pay for his travel. If if all he's doing is going to you know make re and and campaign style events, the Liberal Party of Canada should be paying for that, not taxpayers.
0: One more question for you. You know the Canadians. You're, you're meeting Canadians every day now, or the election campaign's underway. Let's call it what it is. Folks are going, going to want to know how you are going to get the country's finances under control again. Uh, I'm assuming you're not going to tell us the budgets are going to balance themselves. We we okay. have a tw- $20 billion deficit annually now. We have uh, the national debt approaching $700 billion. Add to that the provincial debts with Ontario's leading the way, thanks to uh, Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGinty, still over $300 billion. What's the plan? And give Give me the 30-second version. Uh, How are you going to get our finances under control?
4: Well, you're absolutely right, and and the uh, the same architects of the Kathleen Wynne disastrous government moved to Ottawa and, and are working in senior levels in the in the Trudeau government as well. Uh, we're going to we're going to outline a path back to balanced budgets over five years by constraining the growth of government spending. Uh, some government departments saw spending increases as high as eight, nine, and ten percent. Uh, that's unsustainable, and in many cases, that money is not going uh, to what it was in, intended to do. So we'll be we'll be putting forward to Canadians a fully costed a platform and it will show how we're going to get back to balance budgets without affecting core services like health and education uh, while at the same time uh, some, some tax relief for Canadians uh, and it really has to do with, with uh, the, the spending sprees that happen under the Trudeau Liberals, getting a grip on things like March Madness where uh, departments just spend money for the sake of spending it so they don't lose it the next year and some major philosophical differences. We don't believe in things like funding the Asian Infrastructure Bank or the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, which guarantees profits for large corporations, but puts all the risk on Canadian taxpayers. Uh, And again, we'll have full details during the election campaign.
0: All right, Mr. Shear, thank you for the time. Good talking to you. Thank you very much. Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I wasn't going to insult him by uh, asking him to respond to the Liberals' accusations that somehow the Conservative Party is racist. We're going to this is going to be one of the nastiest election campaigns that we've seen in some time. This one will be
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Eagle Spirit Energy Pipelines. We have spoken about uh, Eagle Spirit Energy Pipelines on this program. Initially, it was one p- p- pipeline that we were speaking about. Now, it's uh, the proposal is two oil and two liquid gas pipelines Uh, involving more than 35 First Nations, and more, as I understand it, than doubling on completion Canada's current output of exported oil and liquid gas annually. The consortium intending to construct the pipeline has requested detailed information from the NEB, National Energy Board, what the approval process is. Everything's changed since Bill c 69 and C-48 were adoptable, maybe not everything, a lot of things have, maybe most things. Calvin Hillian is the president and chair of Eagle Spirit Energy. He's a lawyer, he's an author, son of a BC hereditary chief uh, in Canada's top 40, under 40. And Calvin, uh, you and I were, I think the first time we spoke was at least 10 years ago when uh, when we talked about your your book on Dancing with Dependency. So it's great yeah, to that, have you back. That
5: seems like ages ago, uh, Roy.
0: Right? It I'm, does. I'm does. now working on book five. Wow! <laughs> and and how popular, man! And what an impact you've made on people and made them feel good about taking responsibility and taking on their own lives. I've I've seen emails from listeners who've read your books and said, "Wow, what a difference he's made in my life."
5: Well, you know, the only way to help people is to um, is to give them in my opinion, the knowledge to um, to help themselves. You know, the old adage, give a man a fish and feed him for a day and uh, teach him how to fish, feed him for the rest of his life. And um, and that's really at the heart of why uh, I've gotten involved in Eagle Spirit Energy and promoting uh, basically promoting uh, self-reliance for indigenous people. Um, you know, there was just a study last week, I think I was reading in the Ottawa Citizen, fifty percent of indigenous kids are are living in poverty. Um, most people uh, don't understand that um, the across Canada right now, the First Nations um, are living in, in the worst unemployment situation. Um, that ever existed for America in the Great Depression, the average unemployment rate across all the communities in Canada is 25%. In the northern communities, it's more like uh, 90%. And uh, people wanna be able to help themselves. This government uh, system has basically put indigenous people in in a situation of uh, debt slavery, and they wanna help themselves. This project, our, our project is an enormous project. Um, over the considerable um, time period that it, it will take to build out the project, it, it represents 8 million direct uh, person, uh, person-year jobs and about 16 indirect uh, person-year jobs. It's huge. It'll be probably the biggest infrastructure project in the history of Canada And it comes at a time when the um, energy industry needs to have indigenous people involved. And it it represents enormous uh, prosperity, not just for indigenous people, but for the whole country.
0: Yeah. When we first talked about Eagle Spirit, it was one pipeline that you told me about. And now uh, it's... Significantly different from the original concept. Now the plan is for four pipelines, two LNG, and two Bitumen pipelines from Fort McMurray, Alberta, to near Prince Rupert, British Columbia. Speak to that, please, uh, Calvinics. Talk to us about the scale and why from one to four. What's what's the impetus here?
5: Well, um, you've heard uh, Andrew Shear talk about the importance of having um a national uh corridor right um we we started on this seven years ago and the original idea was that um indigenous people on the coast in bc and in alberta were concerned about the impact of um, the impact of the northern gateway pipeline they felt that there wasn't sufficient environmental protections. And the project offered them um, very little, and so um, we got involved in this to basically um, meet the concerns of the indigenous communities along our our potential route. But once you start looking at that, um, right now there's like pipelines proposed in in spaghetti fashion for various places in BC. And um, uh, an, a corridor makes the most sense, a, a multi-pipeline corridor, because um, you can lessen the environmental footprint. You can, you can uh, concentrate more resources on a smaller area if there ever was a problem in a, in a pipeline corridor. And it reduces the, the uh, CAPEX and, and uh, the CAPEX... Um, investment cost by about 30 percent per subsequent pipeline, so it, it's just very efficient.
0: Now you've had uh, you have input from senior industry executives, but now you're dealing with, uh, and we'll talk about the. I want to talk to you about the, the the financial realities. People always ask about money, but you're also dealing with new legislation bills C sixty nine and C forty eight. We should be hearing more about energy. Uh, uh, Eagle Spirit Energy, anyway. But how does this, how does C sixty nine and C forty eight impact on the objective that you have, or do you know yet?
5: Well, the problem is no one knows, and there is great fear that um, you know it's it's basically. I think it was referred to uh, in Alberta as the uh, No Pipeline Legislation. Right. It's intended to shut down any pipelines. Um, we're, uh, our project will be probably around 75% owned by the in, Indigenous people, and um, we've uh, written the recent letter to the, um, et, uh, the National Energy Board for clarification on, on essentially how to um, basically frame our project description, and, um, and we're also asking whether or not the minister, the minister under um, uh, Bill C-48 the, uh, that bans um, shipping of uh, oil off the BC coast has the discretion to allow um, uh, some ships to, to go into uh, ports um, at their discretion. So we're asking for clarification on those issues. And um, it's, a, it's a very big issue. Um, but fundamentally, be, fund,
0: fund, 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 fundamentally, just the, the very, very basic uh, building blocks, you have them in place.
5: Absolutely. We've uh, been working on this for seven years. I know. We have uh, probably the most senior executive team in uh, Canada that will be, uh, uh, you know, basically veterans from the energy industry and engineering and finance. Um, we have probably the most sensible commercial plan, and a big part of um, what we've focused on is to make this the greenest project on the planet of its kind, so we'll be using uh, multiple sources of renewable energy to power the pipelines and the port and all all of the various uh, facilities. Um, We we have the lowest uh, uh, carbon footprint by having the shortest pipeline route to tidewater. And the most direct shipping route.
0: What do we? What kind of money uh, is being talked about? What's it going to have to? What's it going to cost to have the four pipelines vis-a-vis the original pipeline cost, which I think was sixteen billion?
5: Probably, when you factor into um, the costs of the the, the far more expensive uh, facilities are the um, are the LNG pipelines and their. Their uh, uh, cooling facilities and so on. We're probably looking uh, at an amount um, uh, north of a uh, hundred billion dollars, but that's to be spent over a long period of time.
0: And where does it the sounds, money? Where does sounds, the money originate? Like a, sorry, go ahead. Where does the money ar- originate? I know you've been working on funding for a long time as well. Yeah,
5: well, we've just secured our, our first uh, tranche of funding, and um, we are. Um, are going to seek to get through the NEB process by the end of 2019, and uh, we will. Um, the The problem with uh, with investing in in uh, Canada is that the government government's uh, policies have virtually driven um, most uh, types of investment out of the country. Um, we've um, if uh, Bill C48 uh, proceeds forward, what we're being forced to do is to um, we've signed a, a MOU with a landowner in Alaska. We will run the um, the oil pipelines to Alaska. And the and the odd thing about it is um, in the exact area where this um, moratorium or, or the the banning of uh, of oil being shipped in Dixon Entrance is is uh, contemplated under this new law. Um, the northern part of the area is disputed by the Americans. It's it's a long and well established thing, and um, we can ship the uh, oil to uh, a, an Alaskan port and um, and ship it out under the American flag. and I, and I really don't think there's anything Canada can do about it.
0: So I mean, this this is going this is going forward, right? And when you say a hundred billion dollars, a lot of people are going to just go, wow, you know, you get you get a shudder. But we have to remember that we spoke with Frank McKenna, the former Premier of New Brunswick, the Deputy Chair of TD Bank, who told us in a seven-year period the bank did the study. I think the number was one hundred and seven billion dollars was lost to the Canadian economy just at the dis- just because of the discount at which we have to sell our oil to the United States. That alone costs us that much money.
5: Absolutely. It, it doesn't make any sense. And you know, the really odd thing about this is, um, is our own government is driving critical infrastructure that will create huge amounts of economic activity and, and employment into uh, the hands of Americans. And you know what? The, um, the um, international investors um in in uh, overall seem to prefer that we go to Alaska because they don't trust Canada. Okay, so now you, you have policy. to
0: you have to forgive me we have 2 minutes here. Uh, I am this is a terrible terrible play on words. I'm not I'm not trying to be funny here. This is more than a pipe dream, right? I mean, this is this is real.
5: We're going to do it. Been saying it for 7 years, we're going to do it. I mean, we have uh 300 uh we will probably have about 300 First Nations that are supporting what we're doing. Um, we will be following up with um, legal action um, basically for lack of consultation in introducing Bill C-48. Um, the province of Alberta has, uh, I think, a great argument, a uh, constitutional argument to uh, be putting forward that will, um, I think, will result in that, that law being struck down. And the- a combination of both of them
0: and and the money i come back to the money uh, because that's what a lot of people are going to remember the do- the dollar figures that is over a lengthy period of time as you said that's that's not something that's going to have to be put on a big table all at once so so construction could start
5: that's right it's probably 15 to 20 years to build a, the whole uh, energy corridor and what
0: would it mean to this country
5: well what it would mean is um just economically a, yep there's a a um a group that has put together a, it's hashtag 1750, and I forget the, the last letters of it. And that would put $1,750 into every Canadian's pocket every year.
0: Wow. As opposed to what's happening now. Absolutely. Where money's being taken out of our pockets.
5: Yeah, you know what? If we end up running the oil pipelines to an Alaskan port, Canada has still all of the uh, the same problems. We're going to be uh, exiting the same the same route where this ban exists, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and none of the benefits. It, it makes absolutely no sense. It, it's mind boggling.
0: Calvin, well, I'm going to have to stop here, but we'll talk again. Now, what's the website that people can go to?
5: Um, We're just setting that up right now, so uh, we don't have one yet, but we'll let you know.
0: Okay, and I've been working on it for seven years. Calvin, good talking to you. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, When Calvin Helene says he's going to do something, I would never bet against him. And you can read his Dances with dependency books. This project has been in the works for years. I remember the first time I talked with Calvin was five or six or seven, it had to be seven years ago, and now they're looking for definitions, explanations from the NEB about what C-69 and C-48 will mean to them. The story that has captivated the attention of Canadians, as it should, Glen Assoon, wrongfully convicted of murder, had his sentence overturned after almost 17 years in prison, following involvement by Innocence Candidates. Now, how does it happen that in this country, with our checks and balances justice system, innocent individuals are convicted of sometimes the most heinous of crimes? I'm gonna speak with Jeff Manishin in just a moment. Uh, Very experienced criminal trial lawyer in the city of Hamilton. He's handled some of the most uh, reported on and high-profile murder cases in this country. Also a former prosecutor. But I just want to give you a little bit of background here. And this ran on Global News, a little background on, uh, on uh, Mr. Assoon and the case. November 12, 1995, Brenda Way, known as Pitbull, was murdered and her body left in a parking lot behind the Dartmouth apartment building uh, there where she lived with uh, or had in relationship with Glenn Assoon, a volatile romantic relationship. Uh, he told police he'd spent the night before with a friend, Isabel Morse, at her apartment. Morse and two others cor- corroborated this. No physical evidence linked Assoon to the murder. In 1996, Mr. Assoon moved to British Columbia. Uh, and there were several people in B.C. who said that he had talked to them about the murder of um, the young woman in, uh, in Dartmouth. And uh, on April 5th, 1998, he was arrested in British Columbia, returned to Halifax for trial. A jailhouse informant approached police claiming that Assun had admitted to cutting his former girlfriend's throat and dropping her body near a dumpster. And uh, a few days later, a teenage prostitute went to police after seeing a TV news report on the Assoon case. She said uh, she was abducted and sexually assaulted at knife point by a customer she identified as uh, soon. April 1999, at his trial in Nova Scotia, Supreme Court, As soon conducted his own defense after being denied legal aid and was unable to retain a lawyer. December 17, 1999, um, As soon was sentenced to life in prison without eligibility for parole for 18 and a half years. And that brings us to, uh, well, a lot of other things happened, but brings us to the most recent years. 2007 to 2013. Innocence Canada launched an investigation. The group said it had evidence from two informants that uh, a serial killer, whose name was McRae, told them that he'd killed Way, the young woman. And uh, March 1st of this year, Mr. Assun's wrongful conviction was overturned. A little later in the hour, we'll be speaking with uh, Ronald Dalton, who spent eight and a half years in prison after being found guilty in Newfoundland in 1989 of murdering his wife. It's quite a story how this happened. Forensic evidence would eventually show that Mr. Dalton's wife had choked to death on her food. He, uh, by the way, Mr. Dalton is co president of Innocence Canada. Jeff Manishin joins me, criminal lawyer in Hamilton, as, as I said, defended individuals charged with murder in high profile national cases, also a former prosecutor. Jeff, thank you for the time. And the question that we ask ourselves at times like this, and we asked ourselves this question when David Milgard's case became the national talking point. <sighs> What are the most common ways an innocent person is convicted of murder or major criminal offenses in this country? How does it happen?
2: Uh, There are a number of uh, ways in which it can happen, Roy. Uh, One of those is the use of jailhouse informants, as was the case for Mr. Assoon and has been for others. Um, Another can be characterized as tunnel vision on the part of the police where they tend to focus on a particular suspect and come up with the belief that's the individual and so their investigation focuses only on him and it can result in extraordinary efforts being able to get the individual to to confess whether in the course of police interrogation or in the Mr Big operations that you've heard about of course from time to time and they've been the subject of uh, review by the Supreme Court of Canada um, another area is uh, bad forensic science evidence You have expert testimony that may be biased, it may be unreliable, and it may be difficult to be able to uh, dispel. Uh, You can have faulty identification evidence, um, those are some of the areas. I'd say those are those are certainly uh, several of the areas. Ineffective assistance of defense counsel is another issue, Roy. I have to acknowledge that, too. So those are all ways in which you can wind up with someone being wrongly convicted.
0: So you now have the person who's wrongfully convicted, and there's an appeals process in place, and there's a way to to, to, to protest your innocence after you've been convicted. So the question then becomes, how does a Glenn assume, after this conviction, Now that we know he's innocent, how does he spend 17 years in prison for a murder he did not commit? And there were concerns about his being found guilty, including by a member of an investigative team within the RCMP.
2: Uh, Well, we have to start with the fact, Roy, that the role of the Court of Appeal is to take a look at whether there were any errors in law that happened during the course of the trial process that were of sufficiently great significance so extreme that it could have led essentially to a miscarriage of justice it's not simply a new trial the court of appeal does not hear a number of witnesses again all over and make their own decision there is a procedure available for what's called fresh evidence if it's evidence that was potentially not available at the original trial and could materially have been expected to affect the verdict. There is a basis to be able to apply for that evidence to get put in before the Court of Appeal, but there are hurdles to overcome in that regard. So that's that challenge at the appeal level. People think, well, an appeal is like a new trial. No, no, no. An appeal is a review based on the record of what happened at the first trial. I should correct one thing too, Roy. Mr. Sun was not actually denied legal aid. I went back and took a look at the decision of the Court of Appeal.
0: I was just, I wasn't he
2: had well, the a news story that we had in
0: front of us. So. A couple
2: of days in the tri- into the trial, he discharged that lawyer. And at mm-hmm. least as the Court of Appeal has written it up, uh, he then had other counsel, and they were going to declare a mistrial from the initial trial and start again. And ultimately, he wound up proceeding on his own. They had encouraged him, according to their record, to apply mm-hmm. for the legal aid certificate, but he hadn't done so.
0: Okay, that was a Canadian press story that I was getting that information from.
2: And, and so there's an example, Roy, of how sometimes things can be inaccurate factually. And imagine that now writ large where you have witnesses who are testifying to matters that are inaccurate, unreliable, or even dishonest. Let me
0: ask you this. Is the appeals process in Canada's justice system sincere and interested in the convicted person's plea or is a a lip service service? And I ask this because I read yesterday and I've heard this many times before that our justice system is not set up to... um, declare someone once they've been convicted true
2: or false sorry it, our justice system is not set up to declare someone what's that
0: innocent in other words to overturn a guilty verdict
2: oh okay let's let's approach that two features number one of course the justice system never actually says innocent It's guilty or not guilty. Don't forget that. But from the standpoint of what the role is for the appeal tribunal, Mm -hmm. as I say, it's not simply a review of the evidence and the decision. Gee, there was or there wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. The only way in which a court, the court of appeal, will review a situation like that is where the verdict was so, basically, so flawed. It was wholly unreasonable on the evidence. You might have a situation in which they could reverse a verdict then. But but the appellate function, Roy, is much more focused in errors of law than substantive issues of guilt or innocence. And if there's an evidentiary basis, here, as you summarized at the outset, there were a number of people who said Mr. Soon made admissions to them. And there was a body of other evidence, too. The Court of Appeal, by the way, Roy, in this case, I took a look at the reasons for a judgment, are about 100 pages long. They went into an extensive review of a whole number of different appellate. And would
0: that, Jeff, I have to take a break in a second. Would that be why the Supreme Court of Canada decided not to review the case? Well, they may well have said
2: the They, they don't of the really
0: give you a reason, do they?
2: Importance. They, needed, they didn't need to review it further.
0: Yeah, the Supreme Court doesn't tell you why they will or won't.
2: When right? it's a leave application, in other words, are we going to hear it before the full court? They'll either allow it or dismiss it. And to dismiss the leave application, all they say, leave, dismiss.
0: I want to ask you this question, uh, and, and it takes us back, Jeff, just a, very recently, where the prosecutor in the case for Vice Admiral Mark Norman um, found out information that she should have had, we guess, before it ever got to the point where she said, well, uh, sorry, uh, I can't proceed with this. So. What is the prosecutor's role? Is it to prosecute um, regardless of circumstance or does the prosecutor have to take into account whatever additional or maybe new information is placed before the prosecutor and say, um, I had a case, I don't anymore?
2: The prosecutor's role, and this is going back to, I think, in the 60s, the Supreme Court of Canada said it's exclusive of any notion of winning or losing your job is to present the evidence mm-hmm. and to put forward the position, assuming that there's sufficient, that you say it's sufficient to be able to support a conviction. If you're aware of anything that could tend to uh, exculpate the accused, you're obliged to turn it over. And in fact, a case called Stinchcomb, Supreme Court of Canada, years ago, said that there is a positive obligation for the Crown to be able to disclose to the defense anything that could be possibly relevant. And it's not enough to say, well, I didn't get it. You really have to try and get everything from the police, turn that over. That's okay. number one. Number two, mm-hmm. certainly... In the event that you're provided with information that suggests your prosecution is not well-founded, you obviously have to take that into consideration. And if there's enough basis there to say, "Look, I'm not going to proceed," you don't proceed. I think some of the material in the Norman case was actually provided to the prosecutor by Marie Henan, right. the defense counsel. That's right. And that sometimes can happen. Should have come from the government, and it didn't. Well, we don't know whether the information was information in the hands of the government, or in the hands of uh, of some of the companies that were involved in this. Certainly, you're right. There's an obligation on the prosecution and on the government if they're behind the prosecution to be able to share all the records. And sometimes that happens. Okay, you, so, have, uh, you have a failure to disclose on the part of the police, government agencies, or others.
0: So we have um, Glenn O'Suin in prison for 17 years. We have uh, David Milgard in prison for 23 years. And after 15 years, David told me this, he was offered a deal. Tell us that you did it, and you'll get paroled. And uh, he said, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. So he spent another eight years in prison. Ron Dalton, Ronald Dalton will be with us in a few minutes' time, eight and a half years, in prison for a murder he did not commit. How is it that you can spend so much time, and it takes us back to the appeals process, how do you spend so much time in prison when you're not guilty and you're eventually going to be found not guilty? Why does it take so long?
2: That's a terrific question, Roy, and and I think that that's one that involves a response from government. There's a criminal convictions review committee that is involved in looking into matters of wrongful convictions. In this one, I think that uh, Mr. Assoon was out on bail when there was a, a review. He got out on bail, I think, 2013 or 2014. Why did it take... Five, six more years to have this matter determined. Mm -hmm. I can't answer that. That's for the government to be able to say. Is it the the, justice? Is it the federal justice, Jeff? Is it the
0: the federal justice minister who makes the decision?
2: Absolutely. Okay. Sometimes it happens too that information might not come to light for a number of years. We know, for example, the Central Park Five in the states. The information on who the real killer was, and this is apart from the steps they took to get false confessions from these people. Information on who the real killer was came to light some years later. Larry Fisher in the Milgard case, remember, right? That's right, of course. Uh, now, that's one where potentially it's there in the hands of prosecution authorities, but it sometimes is years before truth will out. But but your question is still a good one on a soon. Um, is there a robust commitment to a timely review of potential wrongful convictions on the part of the government? And the answer is no.
0: Which is the more difficult job, the prosecutor or the criminal defense lawyer.
2: Wow. Um, I would say the, the more difficult job is the defense, because remember that the resources of the state are available to the prosecution, and they're essentially limitless from, from the standpoint of police, of course. forensic sciences, additional staff, um, time from the defense standpoint, sometimes it's a much smaller team and a much lower and smaller resource
0: pool. Okay, I have so to...
2: It is it is more challenging, I think, in terms of the defense role. But, Roy, the role of the prosecution is an extremely difficult one, too.
0: Okay. Jeff, I have to go, but I thank you so much for the time. Thanks. Sure,
2: it's my pleasure as always.
0: Jeff Madison, criminal lawyer in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Ross and McBride is the firm, and he is one of the best. <music> the issue with the... Uh, Top of Canada's military command. I wrote a piece on it yesterday for my blog at RoyGreenShow.com. And, uh, you know, of course, what happened with Admiral Mark Norman. He was removed from his position as second in command, uh, vice chair of the uh, uppermost levels of Canada's military command by the boss. Now we have uh, Lieutenant General Paul Winnick deciding that he's leaving. Because uh, he was offered, well, he was given Mark Norman's job, and then he was going to lose the job. And backed him to Mark Norman, and said, "No, thank you very much. I'm out of here." So we have this uh, this, this this chaos, this mess at the uh, top of Canada's armed forces. Peter McKay joins me now, the former national defense. Minister Peter, thank you very much for the time. Let's let's cut to the chase here. The the chaos of the top leadership of the CAF, where where is it directly traceable to? Do you think what's what's going on? Well, I think to say the
6: least, um, this goes back to the situation with Admiral Mark Norman that you've already alluded to, and that of course has very direct political lines that go back to the Prime Minister's office earliest days in government. When they made the decision to try to reverse a contract that Mark Norman was in the centre of, and that was to replace supply ships, very important to have the ability to refuel our ships at sea. It was something that our government did uh, late 2015 as we were heading into that election, and Mark Norman was central to our ability to do that, to secure a contract with Baby Shipyard, and I I note here that the ship was delivered on time on budget which is almost unprecedented when it comes to major procurement but to answer your question the decision by the government to revisit that uh, contract and when that decision to revisit leaked uh mark norman seems to have been in the government's target right from the beginning he of course later a year later was charged with one count a single count of breach of trust for having leaked information they alleged And as as they say, the rest is history. It turns out that there was insufficient evidence to uh, ever convict Mark Norman of that offence. But by putting him in the prisoner's dock, if you will, it threw the Canadian forces into some serious disarray. And uh, he had to be replaced as vice chief by uh, Admiral Winnick or General Winnick. And then we know the back and forth that has taken place since then. And so yeah. this has been more than a small distraction for the Canadian Armed Forces.
0: Well, it has to be a distraction for the ranks. And I didn't want to, this is what I wrote in my in my blog piece yesterday, because it, it looks to me like it kind of points back to the, uh, to the PMO, as did the SNC-Lavalin situation, when the Prime Minister twice publicly said that Admiral Norman would find himself in a Canadian courtroom. That's almost an intimidating statement. It could be seen as an intimidating statement for a young federal prosecutor or any federal prosecutor who's interested in his or her career so the police at that point i'm sorry um, the the police had not completed their investigation
6: right right yeah
0: yeah
6: and to suggest that it was going to wind up in a courtroom basically presumes that the police are going to produce enough evidence and then as you said it puts tremendous pressure on the crown as a former crown attorney I, i can tell you that's not the way the system is supposed to work
0: and I, I have trouble believing that when you look at—I uh, have trouble believing that it's all General John Vance, Admiral Mark Norman, and Lieutenant General Paul Winnick. I think, I think they are—they're they are, military men, and there are things they can and cannot say, or disclose, can and cannot, and uh, there are things they simply will not say. Uh, I, I, just, I just find it very difficult to say—to to believe that this is all on them.
6: Boy, I've worked with all of them. They're all first-class patriots, um, career military men, approaching 40 years of service, all. Um, You're absolutely right. There's no way that this would be something that they concocted. They had much of this thrust upon them and, and they did the best they could in the circumstances and tried to do their jobs, tried to put the country first, the men and women that they served as leaders within the Canadian Forces. But uh, the political interference, I think, is plain as day. And uh, as we saw, and you alluded to, the SNC-Lavalin case, um, when we heard from Jody Wilson-Raybould, who testified under oath at a committee, uh, she, she spoke very
0: openly. But she wasn't, she wasn't allowed to complete her story.
6: No, she wasn't. And um, sadly, because of the nondisclosure agreement that Mark Norman has signed, we probably won't, at least for some time, have the full story there either. And so this, this is all done, obviously, on the eve of an election. It's all done now in a way that seems too cute by half to try to cover up what was going on, to try to prevent people from talking about what was going on. Sure does. To try to uh, pull a sleight of hand, if you will. Thank you
0: for joining us. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk again before October the 21st. I hope so, Roy. All the best. All the best to you. Peter McKay, former Minister of National Defence.